0: What if we pivot? What if we pivot this whole situation? Well, it is your podcast. What if we stray just off course in the most ridiculous way? How does this microphone work? Can it just you talk works exactly like that. Just like this? Yeah, you're in the perfect position. Perfect. You look great, dude. Thanks, man. How, how are his levels? Pretty quiet, but that's pretty standard. Check. This is that's where what you. This what is, I, that's why I was
1: asking about the microphone. This
0: is where you come in. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm working
1: on it. This is where you, <laughs> I'm working actively pursuing. Hey,
2: we don't levels. pay you to give up. Make me louder. I don't want to have <laughs> to use my business voice the whole time. Alpha, double alpha. Jin Jack's always like, I know when you talk in your business voice, you're like, look, we're making a deal here, okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> business voice, okay, okay, yeah. Phoenix. I'll watch give you out that this. he means business today. Business voice, Mister
0: Business is what they yeah. call me at home. Uh, uh, did you want to pivot? Well, I I was writing a blog yesterday after a little hiatus, and Charles came up, and I thought that even though we were going to talk about wholesale pricing, that that's kind of just an easy lob. But I had some some deeper questions about coffee in general. Oh, I was
2: lured here under false pretense.
0: Well, you don't have you don't have to engage in this. This is something you can that get out. This is something that I think uh, everybody listening might find really interesting. It's party. you ready for this? Okay, great. Here's, here's where we're setting in the stage. Dulce came and talked to me yesterday about the SCA track. you know, how do you feel about the SCA oh, track? Yeah, dude, like, I told
2: her to go talk to you.
0: right. What is it? What does it look like? Some people are really into it. There's all these courses. there's all this opportunity to learn, and some people are super bullish about it, and some people are just not into it. So what you know, what do you think about it? and i have of course a bunch of mixed emotions yeah, about we it. yeah you were on
2: the board and right all so the back stuff. in
0: 2004 or whatever whenever i discovered the sca i was really into it because a lot a lot was different back then there weren't a lot of places to get information and knowledge specialty coffee was like this tiny little whisper in the wind compared to what it is now it just wasn't yeah. super prevalent and you could argue that we're still a really small portion of the overall coffee industry but the, the clipping point that I have in terms of where mainstream kind of comes in is 2017, Nestle acquires Blue Bottle for $425 million, like a 68% share. So that seems to be about, that's a good entry point to where it's like, okay, high-end specialty is now part of the the mainstream culture. So that comes with a lot of different stuff. You know, add social media into the mix. There's a lot of places to get information. Yep. You know, it's not... There's not only one place SCA where you can go there's all these different places but my main thing was okay you know what does her week look like you know she works in green coffee so she's cupping she's interacting a lot with you so my main thing was like are you treating your interactions like Charles in the same way that you would treat a course that you paid $500 to go to because there's so much knowledge here in this building and if we're just going through the motions of oh i'm just setting up another one of those here's another cupping versus you have an expert with you let's let's pretend like you paid to be here how how does that change the way you interact with your work and my my argument is that's going to get you further faster than any kind of coursework will because yeah. the coursework I mean- so few and far between anyway
2: for sure, finding the experts that are around you and engaging with them—I mean, that was kind of like my advice to her as right. well—is, I think, gonna often be the best way to get the knowledge you want to have.
0: Yeah, and you can you can tap into those experts every day. Yeah. You know, if someone made it a point to come sit with you for an hour every day, or not even just sit with, because we're all doing work, right? Yeah. But it's like you're both working in in green coffee together in tandem. You know, your cup and coffee you engage with that on a deep level so i'm writing i'm writing this you know this that's my whole thesis right and i'm writing it out and then i'm getting to this point where i'm trying to explain who you are (laughs) because there's there's me and there's jared and people are pretty familiar with us overall just because of the content that we've been creating for a long
2: time podcast number 12
0: right and then (laughs) you're you're a little mm. bit more mysterious, so I was kind of taking this little snapshot of writing your your bio, and I was trying to explain where you came from. And there's the you know there's the Wall Street piece, but then the piece that I got to that was really interesting was how you came into specialty coffee. Yeah. So you were working for Technoserve in yeah. Ethiopia and yep. South Sudan. Yep. Which I'm just really really interested in, and then. Also interested in the project that you were working on, where you were working on this project that helped South Sudan export the first coffee that they've ever exported ever, uh, or no, how does not that, ever how, how does was, that work?
2: Yeah, it was the first coffee that they'd exported as an independent country,
0: as an independent country when
2: they uh, like broke off from, like essentially got their independence from Sudan in two thousand eleven. Okay, um, and it, and it was the first coffee that they had exported since maybe like the seventies. Um, as part of Sudan, there was a lot of coffee that grew in, um, you know, in the Southern part of Sudan and they'd exported up the Nile and into the Middle East. Um, so yeah, there was a good amount back then, but this, what this project was essentially kind of trying to restart and revitalize, uh, you know, a resource that they had in, in the coffee industry there.
0: So what you were working at TechnoServe, what is TechnoServe.
2: Yeah, TechnoServe is a nonprofit an an NGO, non-governmental organization that works with entrepreneurs and uh you know, generally smallholder farmers and agricultural producers around the world. Um and many of their projects are used to improve um know, yeah, essentially through connections to markets and agricultural supports to, like, improve the quality and the quantity of the product that they are producing.
0: So it's not specifically coffee. They work with all kinds of agricultural stuff. Yeah, all kinds, stuff. which is
2: really interesting. Like, when I first started working with them, you can see all the job postings that come on, and it's, like, cashews in this country or, like, uh, you know, working in, like, dairy in this country so it's like it's it's the whole spectrum of agricultural agricultural products around the world as well as then they also work with different types of like young entrepreneurs around the world as well
0: so when you were giving up your wall street career what drew you to working with coffee in, you started in Ethiopia, correct? Yeah, that was where I started, but I was already there. You were already there. Yeah. Um, so you I, moved to Ethiopia before you worked for TechnoServe. Yeah, okay. totally.
2: Yeah, because basically it was like, cool, I had this financial background and I wanted to use it for something that to me was more uh, yeah, like soul, soul-filling soul than what I was doing before. Um, and a friend of mine worked at the Nike Foundation And she was talking to me one day about how their mission is to lift up girls and women around the world that I didn't know that was like the mission of the Nike Foundation. And so I was telling her what I was trying to do with my background and she was like, "Cool, let me let me see like what projects we're working on." Um, She's like, "It sounds like you could be like an asset, um, you know, in the NGO world where there's not a lot of people with like a deep financial background necessarily." Um, so through her, I was able to interview for and land a job in Ethiopia, um, maybe like December two thousand ten, um, related to working with um, or supporting like women. Own businesses uh, and like the banking system that supports them, which is really minimal in Ethiopia at the time.
0: And so that was not coffee related, but was that still through TechnoServe? Or no, no, no was it was different. different it was
2: this uh, NGO called Women's World Banking that's okay. based in New York. They do great work all over the world.
0: And then what prompted the switch from that to TechnoServe?
2: Yeah, totally. So we, so uh, my girlfriend at the time, Jen, who's now my wife, like she was there with me and we were both working uh, at different NGOs. I was doing this project with Women's World Banking. She was working with an orphanage there. And my project lasted, I don't know, maybe four or five months uh, was the scope of that project. But we both um, really felt good about the kind of work that we were doing there and wanted to continue. And so I was reaching out to other people I knew um in either ethiopia or friends that i had that were outside of the u.s and a friend of mine who was living in kenya at the time he was working with technoserve in kenya um on a coffee related project so he you know he was telling about technoserve and i was like yeah that sounds really interesting and he was able to connect me with somebody technoserve in ethiopia uh, where they have their offices in uh in Addis. so yeah connection there talk to those people kind of it was just uh, again one of those things where like you're in the right place at the right time because again with TechnoServe their you know part of their mission is like they don't want to like they won't they don't want a lot of like you know white people from you know from like the West over there like running all their projects. It's like their mission is for their projects to be sustainably uh, employed and run by you know by members of the countries where. Right. Uh, where they're operated. You're
0: there to help. You're not the long term solution. Exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah. So it just happened that while I was there, um, there was a Russian woman who was super smart, financial backed Russian woman, and she was transitioning out and they were just looking for somebody, um, you know, again, as kind of like a stopgap measure for a little bit of time. And so I was able to come in and like fulfill that role, um, you know, for the time that I was there.
0: So, what was your interaction with coffee at that time, or is it mostly an office type job?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was I was based in the office in Otis to start, and I had this um crazy spreadsheet that I had like partially inherited from um from uh, from the woman I replaced, and just just I mean, huge like the biggest spreadsheet I've ever seen, and so I my job was kind of getting a handle on that and. That really that spreadsheet kind of like <sighs> tracked how the money and the coffee flowed from producer through exporting, which Technoserve handled the exporting of the coffee, then to the buyers. Um, you know, uh, again, this is a, a different part of the part of the coffee conversation, but the majority of the coffee that was bought through that program was by Starbucks and Pete's sure. because the majority of the coffee that is produced in the world is not 88 or 90 point coffee, but you know, 80 to 84 point coffee. Right. So Starbucks and Pete's were the two biggest buyers. And then you have people uh, like ritual uh, like Neumann's group, like, uh, you know, a lot of like the smaller, like Stumptown were like early buyers of the program. Um, so, The part of my work was tracking the money through all of how through like all that and then communicating with the banks, but also communicating with the co-op leaders. Uh, There are about 75 co-ops that TechnoServe was working with. And so communicating with the co-op leaders and ensuring that the money flowed because the way the money then came in was through the government to the banks to the co-ops mm. and nobody really wants us to let go of the money right. so easily.
0: So there's potential for it to not end up where it's supposed to be.
2: And then co-op and then from the co-ops to the individual members. So there's a lot
0: of like. Right. Okay. So recap points. that one more time. The money comes into the government. Yes. And then. So the, so, so, the, so Starbucks or, or Pete's Starbucks, would pay yeah, yeah. the. Who do they cut the check to? To e- like the to Ethiopia
2: to the to the exporting company um, okay. that ex that technosur was working with. Got it. But then all of that money, in some form, like runs through the government. That's what maybe the exporting company has to like. In some way, it comes through the government to the exporting company. Okay, and then um,
0: then from there, it goes to the co-op level?
2: Yeah, and it, so here, it comes through the government, again, because the government has a really tight control on, like, Ethiopia's currency. Like, it's not a currency that is just automatically—you can't just—you um, can't just, like— What is it like uh, it doesn't have a standard exchange rate or something? Well yeah, the government sets the exchange rate. It's not like a market floating currency that um like when you're in Ethiopia, it's really hard to get dollars. Hmm. So the government controls um like the currency and how it changes into other from from like the Ethiopian burr currency there into other currencies like the dollar or the euro. So in that aspect like, it has to flow through the government.
0: So here's a here's this. well actually finish that finish that flow. So it goes through the government again. Government as it gets
2: changed from dollars into, into burr, burr. It flows through the government, exporter, then to from the exporter to the banks that are wor- the local banks that are working with TechnoServe and then from the banks to the co-ops account at the bank and then from the co-ops account it gets paid out to the individual members.
0: So there's four or five levels where things could go completely sideways yeah, and the money might not end up where it needs to end up. Yeah. So this is a, this is a minor, uh, tangent here, but maybe you could talk a little bit about this because one of the things that I remember when I started early on, cause this you're now in what? 2011 is Yeah, early or, 2011. Yeah. So the green buying is still kind of in its infancy you know, pioneered by maybe people like Dwayne or Jeff Watts or yeah. Um, so, one of the things that I always heard about Ethiopia is that you basically can't get any direct trade coffee out of Ethiopia because of the way the government controls its exports. Right. So, what are what are the nuts and bolts of that? Like, how yeah. did that work
2: at that time? Technoserve got an exception from the government as like a trial program because because I think early 2000s, you were able, you know, and people like Aleko and, and other people I talked to, like there was a time, early 2000s, when you were able to work directly with different co-ops and entities. Maybe it was late 90s, early 2000s. But then the government came in and shut that down and then for a period of time. And then TechnoServe was able to kind of get an exception to that government's rule just um based on kind of like a trial of like hey you know it potentially may be better for the producers to like bring this idea back whereas like the government's intention was that by not allowing people to cherry pick producers that more farmers overall would receive higher prices.
0: Mm, got it. So it's almost like a f- they're trying to flatten the curve. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Okay. So you guys got a little permission slip. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Nice.
2: Yeah, because it was a huge project. It was like a Bill and Melinda Gates funded project, and that foundation does a lot of different work in Ethiopia and the countries around there. Um, it also worked with like the World Bank and a lot, uh, like the International Finance Corporation, like a lot of really big. Uh, like world financing groups that had a lot of other work in Ethiopia so you know I think there were some reasons from like multiple entities why the government was willing to let TechnoServe try this out
0: What were some of the things that you were thinking of or noticing like did it change how you looked at coffee
2: Yeah I mean this was my fully my first dive yeah, into coffee on any level really um so, yeah, I mean, again, it, for me, like, coffee is, like, all about the people. So, like, meeting the people at each part of the chain. And, you know, as I was there longer, uh, you know, I also moved into a role where I was essentially kind of, like, advising the co-op leaders on how to, like, look at their co-ops as businesses, make sure, you know, support them and how their kind of the P&Ls of the co-ops are run, know what that money flow looks like and you know just like your revenue and your expenses and and that kind of stuff so i just really enjoyed those personal connections as well as like the connections that i had with all the people whether it was at the farm or co-op level and and mainly at the co-op level there again a number of different people that were employed at each of the co-ops doing different you know that that are working with farmers that are collecting from farmers that are in charge of managing the L, and then you know the co-op leader it's like so they're there were like a number of people employed at the co-op and those were some of the people that I got to know better as well as the people that worked like in the office with uh, TechnoServe as well.
0: How were people receiving you, you know? How, how was it to, did you have to build a great deal of trust or, you know, because you're an outsider yeah, I'm like a in a strange land, like the, right? Yeah,
2: for sure. And Yeah, and, and dude, it's just my personal experience, right? Is like that, you, you know, I never, you know, I never 100% feel, yeah, just as anybody that, Maybe comes from outside. Um, there's like a word for foreigners, like "faringji." Is like the Ethiopian Amharic word for foreigners. Um, so um, yeah, it it is one of those things to be uh, you know somebody that's like viewed differently when you come in somewhere. Which I think is something that is important for anybody. Man, I encourage like all young people to like go somewhere where they are really different. Like I don't. Quick tan, you know, tangent on my end is like, dude. When I was like in my early twenties, I had the opportunity to travel to China with a friend of mine, like early two thousands, and again, just being somewhere where you're kind of like the only American. Like there weren't a lot of other Americans traveling there. My friend spoke Chinese, um, you know, as a, as like another white guy, but just essentially like two people that in a very different culture from their own. And I think it's really important for people. Who I don't know, who grow up in places where everybody looks like them to experience places that are not like that. And I think those are real like I think there's really important perspective for people to uh, uh to experience.
0: Yeah, that's interesting too. Cause there's so there's there's the there's the visual thing, like you look like me or you don't look like me. But then there's also this cultural thing as well that sometimes goes on these lines that you might not think it would go along so for example some of the first the first origin travel that i ever did was to colombia and my experience there overall was pretty welcoming where it's like even though people didn't necessarily look like me everyone seemed really open and they were making an effort to kind of meet my broken spanish where it was at and work with me on things whereas some of the other travel I did in those years this was you know 2006 ish I went to Italy went to Milan for the host show and over there people more or less looked like me but they were not friendly <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah. they made just- no effort to meet my Even worse, you know, attempt at Italian where it was at. And I got yelled at a couple times for just not (laughs) being able to order my own coffee and food. And it was very not welcoming. So there's 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 like the visual difference, but there's also this cultural difference where it's like I felt way more like an outsider in Italy than I did in Colombia, which is interesting as well.
2: And uh, going back to being in Ethiopia, like a lot of what I experienced was just like curiosity. And just extreme friendliness and hospitality for the most part, mm-hmm. like you know just getting invited over to you know to people's homes where they'd you know maybe they have like a special dish that they make when uh you know when they've got special events or visitors coming over and getting to experience that, or even like personally one of the really one of the things that I really remember was um there's a guy Kokeb that worked next to me a lot of the time, and so we'd talk a lot. Um, and he was just really curious about the U.S. and my background. And I was curious kind of about how he grew up. And um, one of the things that a lot of, like, guys do as friends there is, like, they hold hands when they walk down the street. And it was kind of, like, the it was really cool, f- like, for me, like, the moment in our relationship where, like, he, like, grabbed my hand to, like, hold my hand when we were walking down the street. That's awesome. And that was, yeah, that was just, like, again, just the things that I remember of, like, just feeling more accepted and and um, just like when your relationships with people like start to feel comfortable with you, just like the cultural things that they'll like incorporate, the cor- cultural things that they incorporated me into. Sure. Once I'd been there like a little bit longer, like I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I'm, cook, in, I'm dude. Cook, I'm, I had my hand today when we walking down the street. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah. Why, um, this is turning into a little... Masterclass on Ethiopian coffee. I, I know. Why the, why the co-op system in Ethiopia? Like, Why are they so heavy with that?
2: Yeah, the co-op system works. I mean, as much as anything works well. The co-op system, I feel like, has been adopted in Ethiopia because it's one of those places where everybody, it's it's just part of the fabric of life there. Everybody grows just a little bit of coffee, mm-hmm. right? Everybody grows half an acre, uh, you know, an acre, like, everybody has a really, you know, everybody has a little bit, not many people have huge plantations, or farms, or, or, you know, fincas, or, um, you know, really bigger properties. It's, the majority of the coffee is just grown on these really small plots, so the co-op system is kind of a, a natural fit with that, in that the producers can bring the coffee to, the co-op and it can be uh yeah, you know, it can be uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like all brought together in one place. It could be and, centralized and, and then um, what are the
0: big what are the big differences between, let's say, a co-op in Ethiopia and a mill, like let's say a Bay of Vista in because in 'Cause they're both collection places where coffee comes together. What what are the big differences there?
2: Yeah. Hmm. <sighs> I mean, right, they both serve as, like, centralized depositories and, you know, the focal points for where the producers are kind of bringing their coffee, where they're going to receive their funds from. Um, Man, I mean, in again, in Ethiopia, it just often depends on the, like, how, you know, at Bay of Vista, they've been doing it for, like, 30 years, right? So it's, like... They've got everything down to a science. Um, so in Ethiopia, you just experience like a wider variance of the I guess the skill level in the people running the co-ops because there's so many. Mm-hmm. So a really well-run co-op um you know is gonna run much more similarly to the collection side of Bay Vista in Guatemala. Um, you know, a newer co-op with with like newer member, newer leadership, um, you know, it may not, it may not be able to handle the operations in the way that the you know obviously somebody that hasn't been doing it as long, through no fault of their own, just isn't able to operate in the same, you know, maybe quality standards or with the same experience level as somebody that's been doing it for like twenty or thirty years. So I think you just see more of a variance there. And I mean, we had that at Technoserve. It's like a lot of the co-ops did really well, but we had co-ops that failed. Um, you know, there were a few, we worked at 75, like there were a few where there was, you know, mismanagement or, um, you know, other difficulties and challenges that happened that, that led to that. So I think with a co-op, again, just, again, it's going to be often much smaller than something the size of Bay of Vista, Bay Vista. There's hundreds of people that work there. Mm. Usually with these co-ops, there's like, you know, five to 10 people employed there and, you know, they're, they're producers as well. It's not their main job. I think, again, that's another, as we're talking about it, another big difference is that everybody who's working at, you know, at the collection point of the mill at Bay of Vista, it's like, that's their job for the most part. But for the, a lot of the people who are running, you know, the co-ops that we worked with in Ethiopia, it's like their main job was that they were a, a farmer, a producer, and then this was additional.
0: Wow. That's interesting. It, Ethiopian coffee is so interesting because it's, um, since I got into coffee, it was really, it's always really appreciated, but it's always kind of mysterious where I remember some of the first cuppings that I did and even like a lot of people's first introduction to cupping. It's like, you're going around this whole table and then you get to Africa, right? You get to these coffees that are just, they just seem to jump off a little bit more and with a lot of the Central and South American coffees, you have coffees that are identifiable by the producer's name. Like this coffee came from this person, and some of the best coffees on the table are only identifiable at the co op or regional level. Yeah. And that's been changing a lot because you've seen a lot of the, as, I don't know m- much about their infrastructure, but the infrastructure in Central and South America is changing, and like the quality practices are changing. You get coffees that are you know much more than just nougat and chocolate and yeah. what we would classically think of as those those kinds of profiles definitely um, but it's just really interesting to see some of those coffees where it's like it's it's Nano Genji or you know <laughs> this is from Jurgishe yeah yeah, yeah 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 that and was
1: that was the hardest thing for me when we were switching over the bags. Because the the label design was really centered around the producer's name. Because yeah. that was something in-house we would always talk about. We'd be like, refer to the coffee by its producer's name. And then you got to African coffees and they're like one word, like Rico. And I'm like... I got to make that look good on this label that was designed for two names or like two word names. And it, it was just something that always threw me off. Cause I'm like, wait, no, who, who's coffee is it? Cause I'm just used to that central and South America. Oh, oh this is Benjamin or, Oh, this is Damian Chavez's coffee. And it, it just threw me off. And i never never really thought about it until I was redesigning the labels. Yeah.
2: It's just parts of the world where the co-op system is much more a part of like the structural foundation of like the coffee industry. Right.
0: Yeah. So, you were, how long were you in Ethiopia? Is a year or two?
2: Yeah, I was there about a year, all in.
0: And then what prompted the switch to South Sudan? How did that work?
2: Yeah, so, um, right, so just some quick background. South Sudan, they, so South Sudan had been fighting a civil war with Sudan for a number of years. Um, they finally won their independence in, I think, July 2011, and, um, And at that time, because the war had been going on, a lot of the NGOs that were there, so a lot of the people that are native South Sudanese were in refugee camps in surrounding countries in Uganda and Ethiopia, Kenya. And a lot of those people were were coming back as South Sudan had their independence. And a lot of the NGOs that had been there supporting people uh, were humanitarian-based, but the government was reaching out to more... Um, more NGOs that were more livelihood based, Hmm. right? More based on like working and supporting and developing livelihoods. And so recognizing that coffee had the potential to support people's livelihoods through like bringing the farming back that was happening previously in the South, of South Sudan. um, I think that was where the connection with TechnoServe came in that TechnoServe had helped develop um, this infrastructure uh, in, in kind of, um, remote areas in ethiopia right in western ethiopia where there wasn't really previously strong specialty coffee infrastructure um so that was kind of their idea was to bring that type of infrastructure to south sudan and kind of y- use that to help develop livelihoods as people returned from refugee camps and were looking you know looking for how you're going to make a life right um so you yeah. got a
0: brand new country new independence and then coffee is there which has huge potential to be an export commodity and be a livelihood for exactly. a, the group of people yeah, yeah. and it's completely disorganized yeah. to start with cuz there's just nothing yeah i and... mean i can imagine well i can't imagine actually <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine at all you know being in a refugee camp like all of a sudden you've gained yeah. independence and it's like okay
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> now what <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of people went back to kind of where they were from originally to like survey what the damage was, what was still there, um, and try to right, come up with a plan for what what livelihood could look like there. Right. Um and so how I got involved was TechnoServe was looking for someone to travel to South Sudan and essentially do like a countrywide survey to see if it would be logistically possible to start a program, right? What, ta- talking to the government or, you know, liaisoning with the government, looking at infrastructure, um, what did the coffee, nobody, is super, <laughs> super funny, like the conversations I had in Ethiopia with people like, I was like, cool, so where is the coffee? And they like showed me a map of South <laughs> Sudan and they're like, we think there's some here. And we think there's some there. Yes, dude. But because, you know, the country had been at war for so long, it's like nobody had – there wasn't any up-and-running, uh,
1: you know – Inventory, main, tracking. Yeah, any, right. there was just
2: any up-and-running coffee industry ah. and um, any idea of what the infrastructure looked like, what the roads looked like, what transport looked like. Um, and so they were like, we think there's some here, we think there's some there, we think there's some here. So that was – part of um you know what my job was was to was whoever was going to take that job was to go into the country and survey those areas see was there coffee there what kind of coffee you know what did logistics look like would it be possible to set up a program and so i was comfortable doing the logistical part because i travel very easily um in like difficult places and um, then they were going to team me with essentially like a coffee expert, um, from Kenya. Um, and that we were going to kind of be like a two man team that went in to see, do like an exploratory mission to see, um, if it was possible to set up a program. Wow.
0: Yeah. What did you find?
2: Yeah. So so, so I, I was like, you know, dude, as like a, what as like, I don't know. 30 year old that I was, I, like i love stuff like this you know right it's like i'd kind of like i love <sighs> I don't know, you you guys know, it's like, I love maybe putting myself in more difficult situations than is maybe (laughs) the best idea.
0: (laughs) Right? It's like, I mean, you can't What did you find besides malaria? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. And it's like, I mean, the first thing I found was that like, I couldn't take my girlfriend with me unless I was, I found her a job. Because no one could enter South Sudan without a work visa so that was actually the first thing was like cool i was able to go but i had to find jen and i essentially had to find her a job in south sudan for her to be able to come with me so that was like the first amount of work was like in ethiopia finding you know looking through ngos there that were looking for help finding a job applications applying all that stuff kind of had to go in to be able that she could come with me as well um and then yeah dude Landing in a place that was previously, so I landed in South Sudan seven days after independence was declared. Jeez. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, it's wild. Like I landed not really knowing anyone. I had reached out to a few people through, back then like couch surfing uh, was a way to kind of like travel ar- around the world, right? And kind of meet people in different places. And there were a few like, couch surfing profiles in... uh, You know, people can go look up what couch surfing is, right? It's like a way to...
0: When -hmm. we first moved to Santa Cruz, the house that I lived at with five or six other people, we were set up on whatever couch surfing site was the popular site. So we often had an extra person in the living room. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just... It was a thing,
2: but in Juba, the Airbnb of, for
0: couches. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and,
2: and, but usually, it's free. But in Juba, is actually set up to where they would like charge you um, a certain amount. So it was like I was able to have some communication and at least have an address where I was going to stay the first night there, because um, my counterpart from from Kenya wasn't going to arrive for like a, a couple weeks. Um, so I landed um landed in juba um you know you essentially there's a there's a united nations a main like united nations base there uh like a humanitarian aid base and so you fly in to essentially what is like the united nations land strip was being used as the airport at that time wow and so you fly in there and and so then i'm i'm just there and so essentially it was trying to find a way like and there's just no infrastructure right and the money is super high inflation so everything's super expensive um but yeah just trying to find you essentially you're hopping on like a, a motorbike taxi trying to find how to address and trying to find a phone that would work essentially right you're trying to do all the things when you get into a new place like sim card uh what's transportation look like how do i change money right all those kind of like it's like a Jason Bourne movie yeah movie. Yeah, yeah right it's like it's getting set up the, the eth- like, you don't uh, have your burn bag your go bag for I minute. know. coca coca would just call me indiana jones and he'd be like ah oh, you, you'll be fine you know like um, but yeah it's like those basic things when you get in a new place it's a totally different place it's like money phone i had an address so this this uh like this guy that was like you know, fifteen-year-old kid that was my motor taxi guy was like driving, taking me around, helping me find the address. Hell yeah! Um, trying to do all those things, changing money, stuff like that. Um, and then yeah, it's, it takes a bit of time to get set up, right? I mean, um, Juba is just—it's just a wild, wild place. All kind of mainly all dirt roads, like uh, lots of mar- central markets, things like that. Um, also, it's—it's it's too bad I don't have a lot of pictures from that time either because it's actually illegal. To take photographs wow. during uh, the time that i was there amazing um so and yeah and again you see like the military everywhere right you know trucks guns machine guns military um so the uh, so once i was there like kind of first couple of days was just trying to make contact with other ngos that were already there who like knew kind of like the lay of the land and so i was able to essentially the first week there like meet with a bunch of with a number of other NGOs who are very kind and sharing their time like things like the Red Cross and like you know, other humanitarian NGOs that are there and kind of talk through they got me set up with like there's like a weekly security briefing um because you you know it is a place that was just like seven days from a civil war and there is still different militias and and other groups that weren't part of the government um there were you know. There were still shootings and things like that that happened. So right. there's like, no
0: like clean end to a war Yeah, right? it's, it's not like, cool, like, we're all good. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not like utopia is yeah, just you exactly. know, it's like
2: the government is being brought together and um so there's important things like that. Cool, you're you're in on the security briefings. The in, the NGOs would kinda let me know what part of the countries they thought were safe or not so safe to travel to um places to stay that were safer. Um yeah, just again getting like cool, I got the phone and the money idea, how to get around. Then it's like, cool, what parts of the country can I be in You know, relatively safely and talking to other people, getting like the lay of the land. And then my first real part of the work, once you get like set up there, is going to talk with the government and then just starting to search for where the different parts of the coffee, like where the most coffee is. So is setting up meetings with like local agricultural ministers I mean even like the local state government level um and that I mean so I had a meeting with like the head like the newly installed right he'd been in the job for like seven days uh, like agricultural minister and so just trying to get contacts from him like who like here's what we're you know talking about here's what we're here to do is techno serve here's what we're we would like to do you know we're here to survey essentially do a survey for coffee happy to provide you all the information that we gather um you know you know based on your experience like where do you think the coffee is because <laughs> so, at this point you haven't
0: been hired necessarily you're right. making a pitch to them yeah. in some sense yeah, yeah it's right? like, a, yeah and you're showing up and offering help but it's not like they called for you to be there
2: no no because it'd be it would be like funded by uh, essentially, like, larger coffee. Or, yeah, donors, yeah. larger coffee companies that would be, like, exporting, that would be buying the coffee that was exported, right. essentially. Right, So this is to, like, gather all the information to propose them investing the money in creating the program because the government, um, you know, didn't necessarily have the money to create its
0: own industries at that time. And then are they... So you're out on adventures <laughs> trying to find <laughs> yeah. coffee... Did, did they have some land reallocation? Did they know who owned this alleged coffee? Yeah,
2: so generally area? <laughs> we went to visit places where people had come back from refugee camps. And so there's a place not too far from Juba called Ye. It's the print, the spellings like y e I like the town of Ye and like the, 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 it was like one of the more, one of the, the bigger kind of towns in South Sudan. Again, the UN had a presence there. So it's like, cool you can stay at the UN camp. Um, they like rented out rooms at like the UN camp. Um, and so it's a lot of kind of using these, this like infrastructure that was kind of there from like a humanitarian side to mm. then try. So, I mean, this is the the thing you are doing when you're trying to find people is like, you just go sit in the office all day. So when I when I was having a meeting, you know, quotation marks with the with like the National Minister of Agriculture, it was like that was just me finding out where his office was and sitting there all day. And then when he comes by, like, you're like, hey, hey, you got a few minutes. Can I talk to you?
0: Yeah. wow. Um,
2: or like can I set up a meeting, you know, so it's the same kind of thing then at like the state level. Um, you know, doing that as well and trying to find the right guy to talk to. Um, and it turns out that around yay there is a lot of coffee, like a lot of Robusta that was, um, you know, that was part of that like exporting during the seventies process. So, um, you know, and then by then it's um, like my partner from Kenya had come and we're going to visit where like somebody from kind of the state coffee department is like taking us around to visit like different farms in the area. And again, I can say farms, All qu- a lot of quotation marks here because like the jungle had grown over all the coffee trees for right. the most part. So the people that were coming back from the refugee camps were out there, like literally one that we went to visit. He's just out there with a machete, like chopping his coffee trees out, like chopping the jungle off his coffee trees. How long did uh, the Civil War last? 30 years, Jeez. I want to say. Heavy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild. So that was like you're saying they previously exported coffee in the '70s. So that yeah. shit hadn't been touched for yeah. that long. For wow, yeah, for like decades. Holy crap!
2: Yeah. So uh, yeah, and it just—I mean, again, like I should have probably been like better prepared. Like I definitely could have been better prepared. Just like the risks that are there. It's like yeah, one is malaria. Uh the guy was cutting out trees, they're just like snakes in mm. the in the trees, you know, like while he's like cutting them out. Nope. Uh, you know, we're in like tall grass. I'm walking around and everybody there dresses nicely, right? So it's again, it's like I'm in like a a dress shirt and pants and you know, just we're just like tramping through the jungle.
0: Should be in some leather coveralls. Yeah, yeah dude. <laughs> to I should prevent be the some viper bites. Full Indiana Jones outfit, you know? Dang. And then, so, discovered some coffee, got, I mean, every part of the process seems incredibly challenging. Yeah. Even from just the st- stupid little tiny thing, sitting in the office to try to get a meeting with this, you know, director of agriculture, which is something... Did you start and stop that thing? No, that's good. Gotcha. Like sitting in the office and and getting that meeting, it seems such a far cry from what we do now. It's like, oh, just book online. (laughs) Just schedule your meeting ahead of time. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Your number is is A3. Come on by. Old school. Yeah, old school. Yeah. Just the most
2: basic stuff is already... Yeah, it's a lot of tracking down people, trying to find times when they're going to be in the office, like if they're going to be in the office. Maybe you're showing up multiple days trying to catch people. And then just trying to get some kind of averages, like how many trees are in this area? Like what do we think the potential coffee – what do you think the yield per tree looks like? Like visiting the farms and trying to – right, trying to see like what the area – and driving around and seeing what how big is the area where we think coffee's growing around yay and like what do we think the yield of the trees are so how can we compute what we think a potential harvest could look like
0: so you're at, at technoserve once you're doing you're in the midst of this discovery making these estimates on how much coffee could be potentially produced yeah. you guys are setting up the mills like you're setting up the washing stations or are those already there
2: no they're not there and we're not setting them up we're purely doing like the exploratory mission of like trying to prove or not but i mean ideally trying to prove that there's enough coffee
0: for it to be viable for it to be viable
2: and that because i mean the roads hey there's this industry that you guys didn't know about you can and and just this i mean you just see the you know the, the things that we would think would be the saddest things of just even agricultural products that were growing there, like corn, just whole fields of corn just like rot you know just rotting on the vine because there's literally no way to take it to market. and like there aren't really like established marketplaces. like a lot of the products in South Sudan were actually imported through one of the main roads coming up through Uganda. Um, so the coffee that's like the irony is like the coffee that you would often see in the marketplace in Juba was from Uganda. Even though South Sudan has thousands and thousands of coffee, you know, plants, millions of coffee trees, and um, yeah, so it's it's just it takes time to develop the time and structure to like develop those markets and the logistics. Wow, because um, just it would take so long to get places. Um, all the roads were just I I, I don't I know if I can describe just like dirt roads, totally washed out. You're going like two miles an hour the whole time right so something 10 miles away is taking you 5 hours to get there
0: dang so where did it land for you i mean i know you obviously ended up getting multiple cases of <laughs> malaria <laughs> one was bad yeah. enough where you had to come come home yeah but but before that
2: i really like, i really enjoyed the work that i was doing we ended up viewing uh 3 like the three main areas in South Sudan where there was coffee and we actually did find while the vast majority of it was Robusta that we did find small areas of Arabica there. Um, and we did find that like there were certain areas where it could potentially be viable with logistics to like set up um, to for farmers to set up co-ops and to, to create a mill um, specifically around the town of Yay. Um and then yeah, doing that in it was was like that, doing that in a number of different areas. So all those things in Juba, meeting with like governments, it's like doing all that stuff in each of the states and counties and cities where there was or towns where there was coffee, right? So we're doing it in Yay. Then there's another area called the Imatong Mountains um that had a lot of coffee. Those little higher elevations, so people were interested in that um because of the elevation um but also i mean we're like trekking trek i mean but the guy's like yeah i think there's coffee it's like a eight hour hike up this mountain and so it's like all right let's go um yeah so it's like there used to be a road here and then like over 30 years the road has just grown into the jungle and so we follow what like used to be a road across like a broken down bridge over a river and we're like scrambling across um to where this old town where there yeah where there was coffee just growing in the middle of the jungle around this town that used to be there that wasn't even there anymore so it's like um yeah there was some like arabica there and um there was there was more robusta like closer in to uh um like the town the main town that we were at in the Imatong mountains but it's like that was the other area that had like potential and then the one that's maybe more famous and I think there was a team from like you know you hear about the team from like Texas A and M and um, UC Davis that went to South Sudan one time and they focused on like the uh, like the Boma plateau was like kind of the third area and that's this plateau in the east of South Sudan that essentially connects into Ethiopia.
0: Does Texas A and M have a coffee research? Yeah, yeah, I know UC Davis does. I didn't know Texas A and M had one. Yeah.
2: and um yeah, so there were some guys from there and it was actually um man, I was talking to you give me give me his name. Um he used to be part of Intelligentsia. He was in Colombia now, works with Azahar. Um oh. OG green buyer for Intelligentsia. Jeff Watts? Yeah, Jeff yeah. Watts. Like when I was in Colombia last year, I was talking to Jeff because he had been part of that trip in south sudan oh and no so, way yeah so he had been part of the trip to boma uh like the boma plateau um with uh with this uh, with group of like uh kind of coffee scientists that we're going to see um like i think it was more focused on like genetics and things like that uh, varieties that were there but it was cool when i was in Colombia last year uh, talking with jeff about kind of us both having been there um but i never made it to boma and that was crazy it's like we essentially had would have to get in like this like two or three seater little airplane like essentially borrow i think it was like man borrow another ngo's tiny little airplane and they would like fly us out to the Boma plateau um and i think my partner from kenya ended up going out there but i didn't uh like i I didn't I probably would have been uh, heavily medicated on that uh, airplane (laughs) ride. Um, But again, that's just kind of like, there's just, you'd be landing on like the tiniest airstrip, probably just in a field or dirt or something like that. Um, But this NGO went out there for, you know, for the humanitarian side of things. So they were going to give us a lift. Um, So it's really, yeah, it's just, those are the (laughs) kinds of things you're trying to do to like make it happen. And when it's truly like an exploratory, um, yeah, project like that.
0: And I saw that ultimately... So how many mills initially popped up? I, I think from what I read, it was 2013, maybe? Yeah. Nescafe made the first substantial purchase of coffee out of yeah. South Sudan?
2: Yeah, yeah, mm. it was. And they they essentially, just due to how little Arabica was found there, I think the idea was to start with more of like a high-quality Robusta and work on getting the infrastructure set up to export that um and then potentially you know over time maybe you could move toward um you know a higher value you know maybe like arabica over time but um yeah yeah that was essentially um you know we kind of did our full report kind of made our full report that report was incorporated into the pitch to Nest Cafe, and eventually um yeah it was approved by Nescafe and they made that investment for the like the mill that ended up around like the town of Ye where there was like better infrastructure not too far from Juba um that was for sure like the best spot to start the program um and then yeah and then I think since then it's kind of been off and on again there's it takes like kind of again constant support from government and local stakeholders to continue to make it happen and Um, so it's just, I just wish like, do nothing but the best in terms of like, just trying to nurture that industry there.
0: Do you have any idea how it's currently going?
2: My understanding is that it's just kind of been off and on based on, uh, you know, kind of government, uh, you know, how different groups have kind of been in charge government wise and what the support's been like and just... Uh, like violence levels and things like that, as it's just hasn't been a totally peaceful say decade since uh Still pretty I was there tumultuous yeah yeah, so Too bad, yeah, but it's uh, you know it's like the product is there, and it just it's just gonna take um you know kind of everybody coming together to to support the the industry, which um yeah i would I would just love to uh you know be able to to drink some South Sudanese coffee one day.
0: Maybe there's another adventure in your future, dude. <laughs> no,
2: man. Yeah, I mean the end Best of this friends sto- club the South end Sudan. of the story, right? Is that I almost died. I had malaria. I almost died. I you know still have health complications to this day from that experience. Oh, so, you know, it's like uh you know. Did you had multiple bouts, correct? Well, and then I, there was
0: one that kind of sent you over the edge, or I just is that had, not it? So
2: I only I only got malaria once. Shout out to George Clooney, who apparently uh, has had <laughs> malaria three times. Oh, okay. So respect the goat you know? of malaria. Dude, <laughs> that was also the funny side note, right? Is that like I would have been the guy because cause had I not got malaria, my wife and I really enjoyed the work that we were doing there and we were planning to stay and that if the project got accepted that potentially i could be there um you know as one of the team members of the project um, to help get it up and up and running um and my girlfriend and my wife now jen she was working with this really amazing ugandan woman that was like rescuing like young women from essentially like sex trafficking and like Helping bring them to like a safe place and helping them in school and she even I for, I should I forget what her name what her full name is but she ended up even getting like a like a award like a medal from President Obama like a few years wow. a few years ago for all the amazing work she did and and Jen really uh, really just was incredibly like soul filling work to support that program there so it's like we really. In- enjoyed being there for what we were doing um and would have been there longer just um yeah just with the malaria that was just like um that'll do the malaria and then like the complications it was really like complications that were specific to my body that forced uh just me to have to come back and return to the u.s and that, so.
0: that brings us up to where we met. Because when you had to get a job <laughs> yeah. in the U.S., that was where, yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. that that brought me back. That, Chuck shows up. Uh, yeah, again, yeah, yeah. I, Dude, because, uh, I mean, again, it's uh, you talk about things about Chuck, and it's just one of the things that I had to learn about myself was that I kept pushing myself to be in more difficult and challenging situations um like throughout my life up until I hit a wall. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, cool, I'm gonna go work on Wall Street, which is like incredibly challenging and demanding from like a time and just cultural point of view, the culture of working there. And then it's like, okay, cool, I don't wanna do that. Okay, I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna work outside the US and start out in like New Zealand, Australia. All right, maybe then I'm gonna go to the Middle East. All right, from the Middle East, I went to Africa and like East Africa and just, and then from Ethiopia, cool, I'm going to go to South Sudan, which is like seven days off of like a civil war. And I kept pushing myself into more and more difficult situation, more and more challenging situations, essentially until I hit a wall. And so that's like something that I learned about myself through the process and, um, Yeah, just I think a really important thing for me to understand about myself and just to as like we all look at like personal development and look within ourselves about what drives us to do different things. Like I am uh, totally happy to (laughs) hang out, hang out here and not uh, not put myself in maybe like an unnecessarily difficult dangerous situation these days
0: how do you how do you see your work here in that regard because you're not in a dangerous situation necessarily but running a business isn't a cakewalk you know it's not like it's without risk it's It's not like we work for someone and this is a sure thing and we have a pension and all this stuff yeah
2: measure it in like
0: stress levels right i'm sure you feel that yeah so i'm curious because it it it's not it's clear it's a different to kind of... me that you're in a safer place. <laughs> it, physically, for sure, <laughs> yeah. you're in a safer place. Absolutely. <laughs> <Totally>. Mentally. <laughs> but, but career-wise, I mean, it can be completely it, different. You yeah, know?
2: and I mean, it's like there's different things that can evoke stress, right? Like me being in South Sudan and hearing gunfire outside <laughs> my house can evoke stress. Yeah. Or us running a business and... I don't know what a good example would be, like. Well, on I know. Fire, I'll, give you, I'll give you one. I'll <laughs> give you one. Cafes. Yeah.
0: So I mean, so with every every cafe, every section of the business has its own financials, and yeah. then those all boil down to some sort of bottom line. And yeah. then one of the things that you've been pushing us to do is here is a cash position that we need to have, yeah, no matter what, because interestingly enough as you grow as a business and you're even making more money things are much more volatile so the cash position increases you know at almost this like exponential clip to where we have to be able to buffer more things exactly and if if that's not right you're not sleeping at night and i know that (laughs) from experience (laughs) yeah yeah, to where like our cash position has been x x x you know and like I'm just, in the I past, can't, I can't yeah. even function. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that's been some of I've, our big work yeah, to do. Sleeping, so that's just one example. I'm sleeping
2: better these days. Right. But yeah, there was times, and especially like during the pandemic is like an easy.
0: Right. What the an, hell is going on? An
2: easy example to point to as well where, um, yeah, where it's like the stress that your body is feeling is directly resulted to the business, right? To like our job and the business we have. So yeah, it's like uh, the stress still comes and then it's just working, trying to, work within the tools and resources, I guess, that we have to try and reduce that stress to, like, a manageable level. Right. Um, which, yeah, which I feel like we've done a really good job of over the past couple of years, that maybe we were pushing pretty hard in the beginning. I think as anybody does that's trying to start a new business and carve out a, a place for themselves. Mm-hmm. There, that was there were really stressful times, and I think over the last few years we've done a good job of using tools and resources to, uh, and just over time what we've learned in in you know starting and operating this business to hopefully put in some of those like safeguards and uh, reduce some of the stress that maybe we were feeling before.
0: Yeah, I'm proud of what we've done over the past year and a half specifically and we got a lot more to go but it feels good and that's probably a whole another podcast in its own right
2: (laughs) yeah it could be for sure
0: dude thanks for talking that's super that's super interesting i learned a few things and i know other people find it really interesting the world of coffee is this wild wormhole and you got a really cool insight to a specific piece of it that's that i don't hear about a lot yeah
1: dude thanks for having me hell yeah Hey, everyone. That's the podcast for the week. Thanks so much for listening. If you heard something that inspired you, let us know or tell a friend. These are the types of connections that are the most important to us and that we seek to create every day. If there's something you heard and you want to know more about, send us an email to podcast at catandcloud.com or head to our website, catandcloud.com slash podcast and let us know. While you're on our site, check out everything we have to offer. Dive deep into one of our single-origin coffees or pick up a little treat for yourself. We have something for everyone, so check it out. Also, find us in the usual places. YouTube, Instagram, we're always there sharing amazing things. Alright, that's it. Thanks everyone for being awesome. We'll be back next week.